Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck, Nicks? What the fuck, Kratz? What is happening? I am Mark Marin. This is WTF. This is my podcast. Thanks for being here. How's everyone doing? Are you okay? Take a breath. Let's hang out for a little while. Got a good show today. I got uh, an interesting guy. I don't know. You would know him if you've seen him, I bet. I think my first real exposure to him was in the Coen Brothers film, A Serious Man. He's an actor. His name is Fred Melamed. And uh, he's currently, you can see him on uh, Maria Bamford's show. He's just, he's a big presence. And he's, uh, I, I don't know. I always was sort of intrigued with him. I thought I would get along with him. And, and uh, he came up. Also, my buddy Andy Kindler has some things he's got going on. So I thought I'd have him in here for a short chat. Always, always fun to see Mr. Kindler. But uh, how how are you? I'm okay. I'm having a nice tea in my mug from my Glow Swag Glow Season One mug. They were done in two uh, two uh, batches. There's a Team Heel and Team Face. I've got a Team Heel Glow. The show that I did for Netflix about the gorgeous ladies of wrestling uh, will be uh, on Netflix at the end of June. Hold on. Pow! I just shit my pants. Justcoffee.coop. Get the WTF blend and uh, get a little, a little something on the backside there. That's a classic ad. Many of you who have only been listening to this for a little while have not heard the um, the the actually business-changing slogan, Pow, I just shit my pants, uh, that was created in the early days of WTF. I thought I'd do a little throwback. Loved being in Canada. Uh, loved being in Toronto. And then here's the weird thing, though. It's only weird to me. The The crowds were great. It had nothing to do with them. But the next day, when we're flying home, uh, Ryan Singer and myself, I'm on the plane, and they have the you know the entertainment system. And in their classic movies, there was only maybe less than a dozen of the classic movie section on the uh, plane options. And one of them was Gimme Shelter. I mean, what are the fucking odds of that? I told you I just read that book about Altamont by Joel Selvin. I just finished that in Montreal and I get on a plane from Toronto to Los Angeles and that fucking movie's on there that I hadn't seen in a decade 
and it's all fresh in my head. The menace, the darkness, the the insane badassity, death of the 60s mythology right there. And I watched it all. And man, had quite an impact. I do have to say, I talked to somebody else about this, that uh, I don't think the Rolling Stones ever sounded better than those last couple of songs that they did at Altamont because they had a fuck of a lot to transcend, man. I mean, Jesus. I just, some things transcend coincidence and, you know, that sort of weird menace between things, you know, like when something turns into something else, I've analogized it a bit to what we're going through as a country. There's just a big shift in the culture and the tone and there, there's something resonant about the shift, you know, from Woodstock to Altamont that uh, feels uh, frighteningly familiar, very different, but metaphorically, I think it stands up. Uh, tomorrow night, New Haven. I'll be there. If uh, I believe there's still tickets left. College Street Music Hall. Tomorrow night, Friday, March 10th in New Haven, Connecticut. I'll be on Saturday going up to where uh, my girl comes from, the area. Troy, Savings Bank Music Hall. That's March 11th. And then I'm going to be cruising up to Burlington, Vermont, the Flynn Center on Sunday, March 12th. We're going right back. Came back home to L.A. for a couple days. Say hello to the cats, Monkey, LaFonda, Buster, Deaf Black Cat, uh, Scaredy Cat the, t- the Second. Touched base with everybody. Went through my mail. It's always weird coming back, especially from Canada. Just coming back, getting off the plane, and entering the traffic. Speaking of uh, Eugene Levy... Now, look, I didn't, like, I got an email, and I didn't, I don't know this movie, and I want to take it at face value, the email, but I'm sensing the tone might be, maybe it's on me, but uh, I wanted to share this for Eugene, if he's listening. Um, The subject line, Eugene Levy going berserk. Mark, love your podcast, just listened to your interview with Eugene Levy, and I wanted to let you know that my friends and I consider going berserk to be one of the greatest films of all time. It belongs in the same realm of cinematic achievements as Citizen Kane, Godfather 2, Raging Bull, and Almost Famous. To this day, my friends and I firmly believe that Mr. Levy was robbed of a Best Supporting Actor nod by the Academy for his role in the film as Sal Di Pasquale. Nicholson was great in terms of endearment, but Levy was better. He was like a young Marlon Brando or Daniel Day-Lewis on his best day. Listening to your interview with Mr. Levy, it struck me that he was being incredibly modest about the significance and power of this cinematic treasure. To the extent you doubt our strong commitment to this film, rest assured that our VHS copy of Going Berserk is protected under lock and key and by a fireproof safe in an undisclosed location and is taken out each year for our annual screening. Please send our regards to Mr. Levy and let him know that we are all huge fans. Seriously, all of us Jersey boys grew up watching SCTV in our high school years and genuinely believe that it is the greatest sketch show in the history of television. The Schmengi brothers and Bobby Bittman remains some of my favorite sketch characters of all time. Keep up the great work, WTFer. Regards, Kevin. I'm gonna I'm gonna take that at face value, and I believe I I guess I have to see the film going berserk because I I I would have known about it. I, I mean I, I'm surprised if what is being said in that email is true that I didn't 
that I didn't know about it. So I'm going to educate myself by watching that movie. All right? So look, Andy Kindler, what do we know? We know he's one of the funniest people in the world. We know he's been around a long time. We know he's been on my television show. He's, uh, he's you know, he's Andy. I always love seeing Andy. He's hosting the Hulu series Coming to the Stage, which is in its fourth season as we speak. This is me and the lovely Andy Kindler, one of my oldest friends in college. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcast. Podcasts. Comedy. Sit down, Andy. Hi, Mark. Tell me again. You've got a, a friend in San Francisco that is uh, frustrated with the cone shape, so he's now designing his own coffee. Well, film. it's Nicholas Cho. He's a he's a coffee genius. Oh, so he's a known coffee genius. Yeah, a wrecking ball coffee. Uh huh. And. Uh, but a lot of things he says goes right past me. Yeah. Like, for it's example... Too deep? Those, too deep? Well, like, he's, he uses analogies. So uh-huh. he says, you wouldn't put a, you wouldn't cook a steak in a cone shape. Right. And then that kind of loses me. Well, I mean, that would lose anybody. I don't think that, that, that you can compare cooking a steak to brewing coffee. So it's a faulty analogy. No, no, no. I think his analogies are... <laughs> <laughs> is this your, this is the new you, right? What? You're not taking any more guff no more from guff. people. No. If you if your metaphor or simile or syllogism is if not the analogy doesn't in, fit, then I must have quit. I, yes, I got no time for it because my brain will do the work and it will yield nothing. Okay. Yeah, you know, it, it just comes out funny. See, I thought a steak and a cone. How would you cook a steak? Remember the comedy group of Steak and Cone? Very funny. That was very, very, very funny. funny. Cone I loved. Cone, it's sad that he died so young. Yeah, because he ate too much steak. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Come yeah. on. And you, people will listen to this, they will assume that we pre-did this bit. But I, well, I, I didn't get the script. I was just riffing. That, me too. So yes what, and. Me yeah, too. Yes and me too. Yes and me too. Me too. That's how the uh, Trump's going to get people to build the wall. I don't like the Mexicans. Yes and. Yes and. We should build a wall. Yes, yes and. But then it comes to uh, you will. Oh. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So what are you doing? Wait, what's going on? I actually on? have did, some projects. I mean, I can't want, even believe this is happening. Did you want to talk about your, your new uh, view I mean, on the, life? Uh, uh, my new life? Yeah, oh, your you new mean, view on uh, life and your Oh, brain? yeah. Well, I'm on uh, uh, Prozac. This is a big deal. It is, it is a big deal. Now, yeah, you've been on these now, var- various things, right? Many years ago. But I, nothing now? Nothing. A lot of nicotine Nicotine lozenges. And coffee, which I don't think help. They escalate. The coffee escalates it. So, this is the first time for you. Yeah. Seeing, uh, seeing a, a guy- 
Yeah. To talk to and, and having the pills. Right. And then I was on, the, I, I've been on Adderall for a while, which I was, so I'm it's, on both I, now. It's so, well, that sounds like a powerful cocktail. So one, <laughs> so one kind of like evens out your personality and, and the other one amplifies that. Well, the whole thing is, <laughs> my, <laughs> I, so are you adopting my delivery now or I do is, it immediately. everyone does I do it immediately <laughs> as soon as you sit down. I, I, in order to keep up with you, I have to keep kaboosh kabow. With the history of the Jews. Yes. So what happened? So before Andy was what? What what was I'll give you an example. I was late for this I was late for this thing today. Yeah. You were a little late, but I'm not late. terrible. Yeah, but it is terrible to me. Oh it is. I've I've it's it's there's no excuse for it. Right. I have a very evil parent in my head mm-hmm. who parents me in a, in a in a very, very evil way. Right. And says you're no good. So I, it doesn't even matter. So, so on your way over here, did it say like, why bother going? No, I'm, I'm getting a little bit better at that. But like, it's it's like, I, I see your your face. Yeah. I can imagine you getting mad. Yeah. But it's it doesn't have to, but that's just today. The other day, it could be somebody else. Right. It's whoever I'm p- putting in. You're hard on yourself. Right. And yeah. the, the idea being... Uh, in my twenties, I used to think I'd hit somebody in the in the car. I, it, I, it, this was so long ago; people didn't know about this as much. That's actually a common thing, you know. You think you've hit something. You drive around the block. You check yeah. to see. Yeah. And then you realize, uh oh. Uh, in the time I drove around the block, the person could have crawled into the bushes. So then you don't drive around the block anymore. You just worry about it all day. And hitting my, a person. Yeah. My cousin used to call the police. To see if anybody had reported someone being hit. But, so this was this was all during you, my twenties. But you made that up in your head. Did you hear a sound? Did you see a person? Or you just your uh, brain just decided that you hit a person? How does that happen? Did you hear a kunk and you're like, what was that? And you, <laughs> I think uh, ostensibly maybe I did uh, hit a kunk, mm-hmm. but I think it's it goes so irrational. Like once uh, when, uh, I went up to Yosemite yeah. and I was convinced uh, that I started a fire up there, so I just kept reading the papers every day. Why, why, several weeks. why were you convinced? Did you did you start I, a fire? I don't fire? remember what we did. I remember it's, it's always based on some kind of shred of reality. Mm-hmm. So there is a clunk sound, right? Uh, and there is a there is a, a precipitating a spark. incident. But also, I'm always looking behind me to see if I've hit something. Okay. So it's just OCD behavior that I didn't realize I had. But it sounds like somewhat morbid fascination. I mean, OCD. It's like, is the gas on? Is the gas on? Uh, do I need to? Uh, I got I got these rituals I got to do to to make sure I feel all right. You know, the counting, the touching, the things. Uh, checking, but, checking, yeah, Twitter. Check, Twitter. Yeah. That's what Twitter is a is a is a death hole. Yeah, I, I've stopped tweeting uh, uh, anything other than you know occasional promotional tweets. And I am answer. very proud of you. I can't do it. I have to. I have to do it, but I can't. See, I can't cut out the things that I do. It makes me too. Uh, it, it hurts me too much, and uh, uh, I don't. I don't. I don't care anymore. But but the thing. Uh, <laughs> The thing you that, have a very good philosophy. You're a sto- You're almost a stoic. Well, I don't think anyone would say that, but I appreciate it. If I'm a, <laughs> to you, who isn't a stoic? Well, I don't. Even... At the pace you operate at, I would imagine that Richard Lewis is the only person <laughs> alive that you say is a, maybe a little anxious. Well, no, but I mean, I've known you for many, many years, and we're both uh, deeply troubled people. Mm-hmm. So, uh, in, like, as Jews, I mean, mm-hmm. we both have that. We yeah. don't have the same. Like, no one would see you and think you have as many uh uh you they don't think of you as having ocd or something like that i don't really have it i i what i have is dread but and i think it manifests itself that like like i don't need to uh feel like i i hit somebody in the car to think that everything is gonna go badly (laughs) (laughs) yeah and the thing about everything going badly goes back to my childhood and then it it apparently goes back all the way to the caveman days oh really where'd you learn that well 
uh, my therapist going into therapy. I'm into he therapy. took you back to caveman. Well, <laughs> I imagine it started with since the cavemen, people have been what? Okay, fight. Flight or freeze is the basic thing. Mm. Fight, fight, or freeze. That's mm -hmm. what I do all day long. Mm -hmm. That may have been useful when a saber-toothed tiger was coming at me. Yeah. A lion is eating my foot off. Is that an Alan Sherman song? No, it's Mel Brooks. Oh. Well, from what? The 10,000-year-old man? Yeah. You are very old. Yes, it is true. <laughs> How old are you? So old, we didn't have calendars back then. <laughs> that is old. Also, I seem to produce a lot more phlegm. All right, so fight. How long have you had that gold? 8,000 years. Oh, that's old. <laughs> uh, all right, so so fight, flight, or freeze. Right, so that doesn't help anymore. So I'm constantly, with every situation in my life, thinking, am I a good, am I bad, am I good? Like, if I say something online- Or is it good or bad or safe? Say, uh, probably, it's like a- it's like a panicky yeah. thing. Yeah. It's like a panicky thing. It, but it, it, it takes many forms. When I was a kid- Like, did I, you do, like, on Twitter, though, like, did, you're saying, like, did I do the right thing? Should I not have done that? What, right. You know, so how, I, why are there 90 Nazis yelling at me? Yeah, so I say something yeah. that it may be outrageous. Uh, not outrageous, whatever. Someone objects to it. Then all of a sudden, I start to go down this rabbit hole of checking back every 10 minutes. I eventually give up my own view of myself to some- other mm. uh whatever that person is parent. that's an interesting thing yeah that 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 it maybe maybe not giving up your own view entirely but it reaffirms the shitty view you have of yourself well yeah i said yes uh yesterday to my therapist dr mm -hmm. vinnie Boombots, i said that uh <laughs> i feel do, do i feel this way because i'm comfortable and then she said no you, you, it's not comfortable it may be familiar to you. Familiar, but it's over not comfortable. That's interesting. It's I don't I don't make a nice living from it. Yeah. <laughs> See what I'm saying is you seem well adjusted in your cynicism. I'm exhausted. In your cynicism. I'm exhausted. Okay. Anyway, you were pointing to no. Me. It's not. It's not well adjusted. It's just sort of like I, I just don't like. I think as I get older and 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 less maybe more cynical or at least less desperate, um, I just don't see the point of a lot of shit. Well, that's aging. That's the good part of aging. Yeah. And I'm older than you. And I will tell you that that is one thing that does get better. Yeah. Is the, and if you have any health in you at all. Yeah. Uh, if, if the ambitious thing that I had in my 20s. Yeah. Uh, that's not, I don't have that's that as much same. anymore. Yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah. I so, can still get triggered. Sure. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Me too. In a second. So what, what, you have things going on? Yeah, but let's not let's not uh, get excited about them because I mean they, no let's try and get excited about them. Okay. I'm on Hulu. Yeah, I have a show good. called Coming to the Stage. And what's that about? It's a, a show where I introduce comics, young comics, young people who are uh, just starting out like we were at one point. Yeah. Uh, when I was a young comedian, when I did the young comedian so special at age show. 38. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. So, uh, and I bring them up, and uh, I think I'm setting a bad table for them. Yeah. But nevertheless, they seemed uh, they seemed to. So you're uh, you're hosting a stand up showcase show. Uh, it's a stand-up showcase show. Oh, yeah. What does that mean, showcase show? Well, there's several stand-ups that do about the same amount. Okay, of time. but they're not showcasing for another show. <laughs> no, no, no. You know, like showcase format. Like, uh, like oh yes, in, you yes. know, like the like the the classic sort of like Andy Kindler hosts a show where he, you know, where comics are on. Right. That's the way <laughs> I should learn how to describe it. <laughs> Here, let me help you. I host a show. I bring up comics. All right. This is very complex, but let me see if I can get my get your head around yeah, it. Yeah. I, I say the comic's name, they, they come up. And they do their act. Yeah. And, they, and they, come in, they come to the stage. The stage, and you leave the stage. Yeah, that's another thing I should mention. 
I do not stay on the stage. Right, with and, then, the and then when he's done- Guess what happens? You come back up. Now, when you host, <laughs> do you notice that people never like it when you come back? For me. Yeah. They always seem disappointed when I come back. They see me that second time. Well, that was that's always a thing. Like, hey, I'm back. I'm, I'm here to cleanse the palate a little bit and right. do a joke that won't work and bring up the next guy. Right, and, and of course, in my mind- I, if I was sitting in the audience, my attention would drift, but that's not what I want from my people in the audience. I don't think their attention drifts. They're still like enjoying, you know, the maybe the last joke of the guy that was just on, and then you go, "How about that guy?" And then, <laughs> <laughs> what's the Hulu show called? It's called Coming to the Stage. And then I have another thing. This is a- Mark. You know how many things I have out? I have one DVD You're blowing out. Up. One no, I before this one DVD. I've released the first state of the industry from 1996 with all the feuds from the 90s. Now they're back and they're even more uh, hard to describe. And that's also from Comedy Dynamics and that's a download, digital download like so iTunes. So it's from Comedy Dynamics, the, yeah. your first state of the industry in Montreal. Where I said things like uh, Jay Leno's in the Guinness Book of Records for going the longest period of time without having an authentic moment. Oh, well, I think I was there. Is that possible? Uh, I don't think you were around at the Delta. I was. I was there at night. I think my first one was 95. I was there for Comedy Central interviewing people. My first speech was 96. Okay. I think I, I, I think I was there in 95. And then I- Were the, you part of the uh, uh, the hack thing I did? Mm-mm. Oh. What do you mean? I had hack. People demonstrate hack. No. Styles of comedy. I don't think you, I was really- uh, You were really on my radar until maybe- Like, I, I know I went back up there and I remember seeing a state of the industry- at the Delta, because it was a smaller room, it was a lower ceiling, it was kind of wow. kind of tight. You know, it was like almost like you were in the middle of the room. It felt like. Well, you saw that is true, and you also saw what I felt was my worst speech, which was at the new hotel a few years. I ago. I felt responsible for that because I was I was talking to you up before I was in your dressing room. I know, but there's nothing supportive. you can do about it. So, so the the very first one from 1996 is available as a visual thing, a DVD. No, no, it's just a it's just a CD. Just oh, a, just audio. Yeah, because it's it's an ugly room. I'm yeah. not an attractive that's man. That's interesting. So, the, so that's happening, and yeah. then do you have another thing. I think that's uh, two things. What I thought you had something on like uh, pop TV or uh, silly or something. No? Coming to the? Did I mention coming to the stage? Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, that's I on think Hulu. So though. that's on Hulu. That's all you got going on. Uh, yeah, unless you're doing another year of Marin. People <laughs> recognize you from that show. Yeah, and uh, as always, when people recognize me, yeah. they excuse themselves before <laughs> I'm ready to go. They go, I really can't. I can't talk anymore about it. But which episode did you see? I can't, Andy. I have to catch a plane. No, I. Um, uh, people like the show. They, they, I know. And then when it goes on Netflix, they, everybody gets to see it. Um, how's uh, Susan? Susan is doing good. I'm good. married uh, now 15 years. Wow. We're happy. We're happy. I'm very happy. I'm, I'm at the point in my life where I'm happy to, to be just happy. And are you, are you going on the road a lot? I don't go on the road... Uh, uh, any more or less than I used to go, yeah. But uh, it's different every year. And why do I always sound like I'm trying to justify a career that ended many, many years ago? <laughs> now it's good, it's comfortable. I enjoy people, and I like the uh, I like the uh, the the atmosphere. Yeah, and I and I have a, they the, they uh, and I have a rider where they they provide me with sodas of the kind I like in the dressing room. Well, you know, Eugene Merman would crack me up because he got something from one of those rock and roll riders. Mm-hmm. So when we were on tour together, he'd have like a, a three towels in yeah, every yeah. Uh, green <laughs> Just room. Because. and because. And like a Mr. Coffee. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Did you, I don't see him. I don't see Eugene hitting the Mr. Coffee. I don't, I, like I, I just have, all I want, I, all that's in my rider uh, is uh, hummus and vegetables. 
to dip it in and uh, Diet Pepsi. And now I'm like, I'm thinking about getting rid of the Diet Pepsi. You are, you, your obsession with food is unbelievable to me. That you love it so much and yet you're concerned about it so much. My cholesterol is high. So I've been, you know, I've been trying to do, do you know, be Did careful. You, have you had the test that I told you to have? Which one? It shows you how much calcium? Yes. yes. And what and did it say? Not great. A little bit. <laughs> I bring up things that could potentially be. You look good. I mean, you feel good though. No, I went over it with the guy. I mean, it's like I'm higher than I should be than most people my age, but it's not disastrous. You know what I mean? How's your blood pressure? Blood pressure is great. That's good. Uh, a little bit of plaque, and I went to a cardiologist after I went to the Cedar Sinai guy, and you know, he showed me what my artery probably looks like. Wow! And, like given the percentages, and he said, and then he, they ultrasounded my heart, and they ultrasounded my my car- carotid arteries and everything, and he says everything's functioning good. This plaque is what it is. Well, true, we'll put you on statins, get the cholesterol down a little right, bit, and right. there's a good chance you know no more will come, and you know you won't have a heart attack. Yeah, but you don't worry. The good thing is you don't worry about stuff. <laughs> Well, I'm trying, you know, it's like, I, I know I should get off the nicotine lozenges, I know, but like now, you know, with uh, with everything being so unstable politically, I, you know, there's part of me that's sort of like, well, if I'm, if I'm going to die, I want to be responsible for it. Well, that's true. That's true. But, you know, I also think you stopped uh, uh, drinking and stuff very young in life. Right. And I stopped know? smoking many years ago, but yeah. the, the nicotine can't be good. And yeah. now, now I'm not, I'm barely eating any cholesterol and I'm on a statin. Oh, and so, but, but oh, the thing I can't stand backstage yeah. is crudite. That's my new- uh, Crudite? Bet noir. But that's the vegetables. Yeah, because why would you ever eat raw broccoli anyway? No, I, I don't mind it. Like, I'd rather that than candy or, you know, like- a, That's true. Like, I just, I need something, like, I'm generally going to eat off-site. Right. So, like, if I need to eat something compulsively before or after I go on, it might as well be good for me. Right, and that's that makes all. Sense. That makes sense. But now I see you're asking me about me on the road. I I feel like I've, everything's under control. But I I when, when I heard your schedule, I was like, oh my god, Carnegie Hall, this and that, and how'd that go? Carnegie Hall went good. There was too much food there. <laughs> <laughs> like that food situation was a disaster. The show was beautiful and quickly forgotten by everybody. What do you mean? You had a backstage buffet. Well, no, it was, it was the New York Comedy Festival, and uh, you know, I did almost two hours at Carnegie Hall. I sold it out. It was a very moving moment. A lot of my fans were there with me, and four days later, the election happened. So oh I'm glad I got, in, un- oh. I got in under the wire. For me, right. it was an amazing experience. But backstage, the festival had provided an uh, 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 insane amount of food. Right. And then I had sort of prepared a little bit of an after party with Carnegie Deli stuff from across the street. But because I did so long, the after party, the Carnegie was not prepared for it, and they had to be out by midnight and I had oh. like 30, 40 people there with all this meat and we were rushed and there were no plates and I didn't prepare properly and I feel like a lot of meat went to waste. Now, do you still think about that? Because that's OCD if you're still thinking about it now. I'm you're upset not. that like I feel that maybe that corned beef didn't get eaten and there was a lot of nice <laughs> stuff. Did you ever listen? Uh, one of my favorite uh, things is uh, Lenny Bruce at Carnegie Hall. Yeah, oh, it's the best. Yeah, because he ta- hears the sound backstage. It's the best. And uh, and that know. the fact that they waited hours for him because his plane right, was the, in the uh, snow. Pro- pro- and I, I, I'm very angry, not very angry, but I don't like the revisionist uh, Lenny Bruce. I don't either. He, I talked to, uh, what's his name? Nesterov. What, well, he's not guilty of it. What, what I, is he, he? He, said, he, he? Well, I love him, but he says he doesn't think he's funny, Lenny Bruce. Yeah, but I, I think that's a misnomer. I was talking to, what's his name, Zinneman. Oh, okay. And Jason. He, right. Yeah, who wrote an article on it. And I, I just feel like, and I told him, I said, you know, if you're going to look at all of it, um, if you look at the early stuff when he was doing jokes, 
Right. There's great jokes. There's great bits. When he became more preoccupied with making a point, it became a little layered. Right. But, but I don't. I think maybe less punchy, but equally as funny and compelling. Just as compelling. Sure. Right. But I. I do think that people forget that he had great jokes. You That's know, true. Like, hey, we'll play a little. Uh, let's. Let's. Uh, you want to play a game, Ma? Yeah, I like games. There's <laughs> a little game called Fill Out the Policy. <laughs> Remember the guy who puts his mother on the plane with the bomb? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. They play a little game called Fill Out the Policy. Well, the other thing, like, because uh, some, you know, I'm very turned off to the whole new atheist movement. When you hear what Lenny Bruce was talking about, he was actually exploring the corporatization yeah. of religion. He had interesting observations about everything. Well, there's a couple of things, like, if you listen to the Berkeley concert, you got to listen. Right. Like, and you got you to gotta go back because he comes back around. You know, he's operating on three or four different, you know, trajectories all at once a lot of times. Like, it's, 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 it's taxing. And a lot of times it's so peppered with references to current personalities of the time and some Yiddish that, you, you know, it's easy to get lost. I, and then that's what makes me relate. Like, I feel very uh, a kinship with him. I feel like he had that kind of cat. Cats, except they had a much big, bigger. Uh, He's a good mimic, yeah, and he had a, yeah. of uh, Yiddish. No, I like. I, I think I, I, I am agreeing with you. Yeah, that the revisionist perception of him as not being funny is false. If you listen to like the first three or four records, right? You got to put him in context. That's true. And sure. like, you know, the point of saying he wasn't funny. It, it, why do that? Well, I, I do it with people like maybe like Red Skelton. I think that at some point we're we not should expecting all, the same we, thing. We should all make. We should have a judge and jury about these classic entertainers and decide once and for all. Well, he's a clown. Well, that's the other thing too. I'm so well aware of what I'm not aware of. I don't. I never. I used to tell people, "Oh yeah, the show of shows." I never watched a show of shows. Yeah, I don't know any of that. I watch very little Nichols and May. I mean, when I see it, I like it, but I don't even know how anybody can judge anything when you you know you don't know anything. I never saw more than ten minutes of Ernie Kovacs. Well, you got you can watch all that stuff if you want. Very busy, <laughs> but you read though. I my read, image I of you is so no. I may mean, not I, be I'm you. Like, I'm, no, I'm like you. I mean, I you know, I, I I'm like a little you know consumed with the uh, news now, and I do read. I just read a great book on Altamont. Oh wow! No, you got you you're you're interested in that? Yeah, yeah. I'll very give it to you. I'll give it to you. It's a, like it's a great book. So let's do that. Let's finish. Okay. Uh, you mean like with me reading the book? Yeah, I like it. I'm going to go get the book. Like the Eddie Kaufman bit? And you're going to start reading it. Yeah, yeah. And the bit will be, we don't end. We don't end. No, I, I'm very bad with uh, this. I, one of the things I admire about you, besides yeah. that you're handsomer than me. No, I don't know. Which that's always true. bothers me. No, I think you look I great. I think I'm good looking. Don't keep myself. I'm, I'm surprised you're 70. <laughs> <laughs> Why do those jokes always get me? Uh, I can't close a thing. You, I notice, boom. You go, well, thanks a lot, uh, right. uh, Pee Wee Herman. Where are you going now? I'm going to do Tom Tom Arnold's podcast. Right now? Yeah. All right, well, say hi to him for me. Yeah, I will. Oh, is that the way you're going to close? Yeah. I love it. Oh, we figured out a way to get out. That was the uh, the lovely and uh, medicated Andy Kindler. <laughs> I love Andy. Fred Melamed. Fred Melamed. Great actor, great presence, interesting guy. I, I'm really happy I, I got to talk to him. For a long time, we didn't do a, a ton of actors here. Now, like I do, uh, I, I talk to actors that I think will be interesting people, and Fred is that. 
Uh, most recently, you can you can see him on Maria Bamford's show, Lady Dynamite. Season one is streaming on Netflix, and season two will be out later this year. You can also I would go go watch Ser- a Serious Man, the Coen Brothers movies. It's one of my favorite ones, and he was just um, spectacular in that. This is me and Fred Melamed. I like uh, when people come over and talk, uh, but you know, socializing not great at. Yeah, you. Um, you know, I don't do, I, 98% of my friendships happen through show business. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm, I, and which is a little, it's a, it makes it a little bit hard because you get the, 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 the meism of people in show business becomes somewhat wearing after a while. I have a few friends that I went to college with that did other things. Yeah. But nowadays. Yeah. There's like two avenues. Yeah. There's through kids. Right. And schools and all that. How old are your kids? I have twin boys. We have twin boys that are 14. Oh, okay. And I'm 60, so I'm, yeah. I'm old. So if, if I go to the school, yeah. you know, I don't want to be called grandpa, and that's usually right. what happens. Really? Often. Now? Well, I, mean, I mean, it seems like I know a lot of guys that had kids. I, just, well, I have a friend yeah. at 60 had one. We, we have a slightly warped perception of that living in L.A. Yeah. About the normalcy of that. Right. But uh, as we do about several things, oh, the, the whole dog madness is also, I was talking to somebody about that the other day. Mm. It occurs to me, and I love animals, I enjoy animals. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that the reason that we have this religion of animals in yeah. Los Angeles and the West Coast in general is because so many people have this inborn need to take care of something, which as human beings, of course, we know how that derives. Sure. But they're too selfish or they're too self-obsessed to have yeah. children or they're too, and they can't stand the idea of not being loved unconditionally or kids that might fucking blame them like they're like they blame right. their they, parents. You only got about what about a three-year window to be loved unconditionally by a kid? <laughs> yes. And then right. and, and then they start and then to they start question. And they start to hate you. Well, maybe just question or maybe worse. <laughs> right, right. But whereas a dog struggle to become their own person. Precisely. Yeah, a dog never sort of like I'm done with this shit. No, he starts yeah. off autonomous. Well, and that's why I have cats. You're never quite sure whether they like you or they're going to be there the next but day. But you or... have to be the right kind of. Per- Some people would yeah. find that level of, uh, you know, indifference painful. I know, but I grew. I, you know, it's weird. I grew up with a lot of dogs, and I understand the uh, unconditional thing. But I resented it. I, I you know, I, I don't trust love innately. So, uh, so with cats. You know, the struggle is fine with me, and the independence is fine with me, and the maintenance is fine with me. You know, with dogs, I even with dogs, I will get to a point where it's sort of like, why do you like me this much? I, I don't understand. That we, in, our, in our three minutes of talking together, we've stumbled upon one of the great themes that obsesses me at the moment. Really? Yes, because I'm working on a television show, which I'm writing. Oh, great. And the theme is, and it's obsessed me long before I was working on this television show, is some people innately feel lovable right and some people like the central character in this thing that i'm writing and also to be frank like me yeah feel it has to be earned hmm they feel they have to earn it that you have to earn the love yeah well it's it's interesting because i'm a person that over time you're a little older than me but i have found that i i defy people To love me, which I think it, it's different than earning. It's sort of like some weird test, but I, I don't know what you. When do. you say defy, do you mean that you do things that push them away? Yes, yes, and then sort of like, uh, and you know, and I've thought about this, you know, a long time, uh, but you know, right at their breaking point where they've had it, like you know, fine, fuck you. Then I'm like, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 or if I push it past the point to where you know they're upset. 
and I level the playing field with misery then and connect around there that there's this defensiveness to it. So I, I don't know I don't know if it's earning. I think it has to do with how you were brought up, you know, and I, I had, uh, well, I'm going to talk about myself, I guess. There's a, you know, the selfishness of one's parents, you know, and, and how much self-parenting one is forced into doing when they don't even know it is going to really determine what you're talking about. So when you say earned, do you not feel like you deserve it? That's a tough question that I don't know exactly know the answer to, but I do think I'm inclined to feel, and I mean, it, to some degree, it's been resolved in me in my adult life, but there's still plenty of shit going on that's, you know, under there that's not so great. Um, I think it's I don't not, think that goes away, Fred. I don't think. Yeah, it, I think you make peace with it, but right, I don't think it goes right. away. You, you find ways yeah. to temper it. Yeah, exactly. If you're lucky, if you're lucky, a lot of people are fucked for life. That's it. Yeah. It's not so much that I start out that I'm an irredeemable piece of shit. Yeah. But it's more like, well, yeah, you're just there. Yeah. But if you want real love, if you want the real to be lavished with that feeling that you're needed, you're necessary, yeah. you have to earn it. You yeah. have to you have to do For something you. that makes. Yeah, well, I don't mean in general. I mean this is me. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. a lot of other. You have to earn it. Yeah, I have to earn it. You're hard on yourself. Well, <laughs> not not hard in all respects. Yeah. But I mean, I'm inclined to think that in my natural lazy state, I'm not so lovable. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I think my whole I think my whole is my whole idea is I have to be overcome my fatness yeah. my Jewish looking accountantness yeah. my whatever other things about myself that I find that might be distasteful in my mind it's all about overcoming that shit right 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 to be for, lovable yeah, for, yeah. For, and now, and that's not a great way to start out the day as you know <laughs> believe me I know I know. <laughs> You know, I, I've I've gotten cynical. You know, you have a, a family and, and and children. I, you know, when you talk about not having children, for me, it was really like yeah, I'm too anxious, I'm too worried, I'm too nervous, I'm too panicky. I am self-absorbed, but I don't necessarily think it's my responsibility to to bring kids in the world and try to overcome my self-centeredness. But I, I am a very panicky person, and so are my parents. And just the the sheer terror of of uh, having a kid, even sleeping in the next room. You know, as an infant, to me, when I think about it, I'm like, oh, is it going to, what's going to happen to it? Is it going to make it? Was it? Is it okay? Just that for life. I can't handle it. You know, I'm not so different. I'm not so different from you. But the, but I think people have been feeling those things from the time that we were amoebas. And really? Yeah. I don't think that's anything new. I don't think that mm -hmm. came with the Holocaust or anything. <laughs> I think that's a, that's, that goes way, way, way back. And I, I can remember saying, I had a psychiatrist when I was in my 30s. Yeah. I remember saying to him very specifically, why is any woman in her right mind gonna ever going to want to get hooked up for seriousness yeah. with somebody like me? A big, broken-hearted baby. Yeah. I mean, yes, I'm, I'm okay. I have certain <laughs> things to recommend me. I was trying to figure out what it was that I felt so connected with you about <laughs> you without, without knowing you. Like, because I'd see you on screen, I'm like, I know that guy. I love He's that a guy. Big brokenhearted baby. Oh, just like me. <laughs> but he seems less angry. He's like a, a nice counterpart. To well, it. that's because it has to be earned. It has to be earned, Mark. If I start showing that shit how angry I really am, then they're really gonna say, "What the fuck do we need you for?" <laughs> well, welcome yeah. to my life. <laughs> So I had to be, I in my mind, I yeah. had to be extra nice or extra sweet or extra solve everybody's problems or something or other. Yeah. Um, but I, but 
I remember saying this to, the, to, to this very good psychiatrist I had many years ago, and he said to me, you know, he was English, yeah. you'd be surprised. Some women would find somebody like you quite attractive. And I thought, Jesus. English or German? Well, he was, he, he was German, but grew up it, during the Blitz, he was sent to England. Oh, it's a tricky, as a tricky accent. Yeah, I didn't do it so great. <laughs> no, but. you did. You did. So he, so he was. He he grew up in England, and yeah. he said, "You know, you might be surprised. There might be. You might find a woman or two, <laughs> two. who who might <laughs> actually find somebody like you worthy. Yeah, without you having to do all this, all these magic tricks to distract yeah. them. Yeah, <laughs> right. So to speak. Yeah, or, or 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 as I have found, but I think we're different. Is that you? You might be part of their development." Exactly. Yeah, someplace where they hang out for a while and then move on. Exactly. <laughs> but the good news is... The You're good an educator, news. an emotional educator. Well, let's face it. You know, yeah. you have to go through a lot of relationships before you get... Or maybe not everybody, but I had to go through a lot of girlfriends yeah. to get to the point where I was ready yeah. to have a good one. Yeah. You know what I mean? Sure. And if the truth is, if, the, if a good one is not in your script, yeah. if you don't think that you're deserving or you don't... Th you might think you're so unappealing for some reason that you wouldn't even consider somebody that might cross your transom yeah. because she's so far out of what you imagine would go for you. Sure. And, but I, I married one like that, and I was right. I was, was, <laughs> Were you right? <laughs> Did your yeah. worst suspicions get through? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. I was not the one. <laughs> but the true, the good news is, yeah. if you hit one good one, yeah, all the bad ones, it doesn't matter anymore. It becomes part of your development, you right. know. You know, and you don't have it. I mean, the, I think the best thing you can arrive on is a as few regrets uh, uh, in, in terms of you know how you look at your life as possible. If you can integrate things into like, well, you know, that was Zen. And, you know, I, that's who I was, and that's that. Not like, oh, God, did I fuck that up. Well, you know, the truth is, I, I and I'm not saying anything very sage or new, but I regret much more things that I didn't do, things that I was too fr afraid to try yeah. or too right. stuck in my room. Yeah. I regret that more than any mistakes that I made. And, in fact, most of the pain in my life yeah. has been caused... Not by pursuing the things that my heart desperately wanted, yeah. but by getting what I could get. Right, right. But by getting the things that I, that I knew I could get because the things I really wanted, I thought, oh, I'll never get that. I'm too messed up. I'm too defective. Oh, yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? No, I, I've, I've had that. So, like, well, let's, let's go back. Where did you grow up? I grew up in New York. Like, that fig I figured that. Because like, I see you around and... Um, you know, you're in everything now. You seem to be an ever-present character actor. Uh, 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 yes, a big, a big star. I got my my picture in the on the wall of the Carnegie Deli, right above the words "choking victim." Everyone knows who I am. <laughs> well, it's, it's gone very, now. It's very, now the Carnegie Deli is gone. But uh, but like um, like for me, like when I saw you, and uh, I think the first time you seemed very familiar to me was when I saw Serious Man, which I loved. You know, and and as a you know a, an American middle class Jew person. You know, I, I didn't, it was timeless to me. Mm -hmm. And the character, what was it, Cy? Were you, Cy Abelman. Cy right. Abelman was such a, a, a sort of sweet monster. Just a, <laughs> this, this horrible, selfish person that was very charming. And I, and I thought to myself, you know, like, I, I, this, I'm, which one of my parents' friends <laughs> is this guy? But there was a familiarity that was a, this sort of established between me and you that you didn't know about. 
So I, you know, I was always curious as to, to you know, where you came from. So you, you grew up as a kid in New York City? I grew up in New York City. My parents were both also born and bred in New York. My dad was in the business. My dad was a television producer, and he produced some early uh, comedy shows before the whole influx to California. He produced an old show. You're probably too young to remember the show called Car 54. Where I heard are of you? it. Yeah. He was a producer on that and uh, some other shows of what that What other era. shows? Uh, Sergeant Bilko. Sergeant Bilko. Do you remember with Phil Silvers? You should do a Phil Silvers biopic. You know, people, people, people say that to me now. They do? Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, that I, not that I should do a biopic, but that I resemble Phil Silvers, although Phil Silvers was rather slim, but I think but in other, other ways, I look like Phil Silvers. What a challenging character that would be. Well, He's... Phil Silvers in real life, I don't yeah. want to, I, 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 uh, you know, you're not supposed to say things uh, unflattering. Crazy of the, gambler. Of, of the dead. Right? Yeah. A, a very, very serious gambler and had some other things about him. Of course, this doesn't make him a bad subject for a movie, quite sure. the opposite. Right. But there were a lot of uh, things about his life uh, and about his character that made him a very, very tough customer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. To deal with. Yeah. Or Did so you, I've been you, told. Oh, was he part of your childhood? Or, you know? No, I, that was before. But when I was growing up, my father was doing Car 54, and there was a guy called Nat Hyken. Who was a kind he of was like, a, yeah? I've heard his name before. He was like a big deal. He's a writer, right? Yeah, he was yeah. a writer. Sort of. Show, this is before we used the term showrunner, but that's what he was. Sure, I think I talked to Norman Lear about him. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Norman Lear and guys of that ilk yeah. knew him. He was yeah. like a pioneer in television yeah. comedy. Yeah. So my dad was kind of like his right hand man, Hikins. Yeah. And your dad was a producer. Yeah. Yeah. And then they had, and then my father had an idea to do a show with Andy Griffith. Yeah. Uh, where Andy Griffith would play uh, the local fire chief, not police chief, but right. the local fire chief of this little southern town. Yeah. He brought the idea to Nat Hyken. Nat Hyken said, well, Nat said, well, that's an interesting idea, but I don't think I want to use it. And then about two years later, the show came out with where he, with, where Andy Griffith was really? the sheriff. So they had a big falling out out over that, and there was a kind of a lawsuit and this and that. So your, and guy, your dad was the, the, the bitter guy behind the guy. Precisely. Yeah, <laughs> Precisely. there's plenty of those in show business. Precisely. The, uh, that fucker stole my shit guy. Right. And, but my father also, and I, I love my father dearly, but my father... Never quite understood certain things about show business, though he was in it all his life. Yeah. Like, he was a very charming, sweet, funny guy, but he didn't really understand working hard as a principal. Mm. He kind of thought it was all about charm and getting people to like you and stuff like sure. that. Which does kind of, you know, help, but when the time, when the red light is on, you have to have the goods, so right. to speak. Right, sure, you know? yeah. And he wasn't, he, like, I remember he would toss off scripts, and he'd say, what do you think of this? And he'd be sitting at the, you know, the typewriter for a couple of hours yeah. or a day, and that would be it. But people, when they write stuff, it's, uh, I mean, I think maybe average people don't realize how, these little stupid sitcoms, how they're oh labored over. Oh my God, there's a room full of uh, 12 people. Right. For and days and days. Arguing about everything, yeah. and and, st and, and in most cases, and they, they take it seriously, yeah. they're striving to make it clear. Oh, yeah, and and or and they don't realize they're ruining it. Could go either way. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you're exactly right, and that's a very interesting. By the way, not, not to not to diverge totally from what Sorry. we're talking about, but uh, I'm on the show with Maria now. Yeah. Your friend, your Maria friend, Bamford, and yeah, uh, your your beloved and mine. Yeah, she's Lady great. Dynamite. Great, she's great. Um, and that was such an interesting experience, because for, for among other reasons, but primarily because. Here's a show that's kind of different. I mean, everybody says that, but it genuinely kind of way out show. Yeah, trying to put, trying to keep Maria's whole vibe in the show at the center of the show, right? Now, if you've ever done network television, you get a note on the fucking 
tablecloth color gets a note. Everything right. gets a note. Every single thing. Sure. In order for people on television to keep their jobs, sure. yeah. everybody has to have their imprimatur oh, on yeah. everything. Right. All the executives have to ch- chime right. in right. Every and make time, sure they don't get blamed for anything. Or, right, get <laughs> if there's a little bit of glory, they want it reflected yeah. on them. I did the tablecloth thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I argued that shit would be puce yeah, and it was puce yeah. in it. And now it's- we Made got, the scene. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So that's the model that everybody, not everybody, but I and that many other people are used to where somebody has an idea and it has to go through 9,000 hands. And of course, in that process, it gets watered down. It gets messed up. It's different. You forget the original idea and the energy that might have been there at the beginning. Precisely. Yeah. This was so different because this show is on Netflix. Yeah. And and the, the... streamers the big streaming outfits don't come from the network television model they come from the silicon valley model Mm -hmm. where the way that they do it is they find a maverick they find a steve jobs they find somebody like that yeah in this case it was mitch hurwitz sure uh, and pam uh who, who who run our show and they they let them run so for good or ill you actually do wind up with something very close to the idea. Yeah, because they got the money, they got the time, they're not beholden to advertisers. Uh, the, the, you know, there were, up to a year or two ago, I don't think Netflix really had a, an executive structure to accommodate talent. So, you know, you're, they're really depending on these people that have experience and are willing to take chances to do it. I just did one with uh, Genji Cohen mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Liz Flayhive and Carly Mensch were the showrunners. But, you know, they had, you know, they had money behind them, they had a vision. And, you know, Netflix are around, but they're usually sort of like, good, good. Yeah, exactly. They're there, but there's no compulsion to, like, put their paw print on everything. So how is that, like, how did that affect, and this character is a little different for you, and getting back to what you grew up in, you know, you're playing uh, an inherently show business character that comes from a tradition of depictions of agents. You're an agent or manager? Manager. Manager. But, like, that is such a, you know, in our world, those characters have, have been done before and this was like a different vibe for you right it was because very often i'm cast playing machiavellian kind of smooth bad guys or not maybe not smooth but they ingratiate themselves like you said like cy abelman yeah i mean cy abelman like your father well no my dad was not like that not a bad guy but a charming guy yeah my my dad was my dad was a little bit more like bruce oh okay my dad my dad had his nose pressed up against the glass of show business success his whole life and he could smell it but he could never quite get to the pastry if you know what i mean did you meet the real bruce Oh, yes, I'm friends with the real Bruce. He's a good guy. He is a very good guy, but I'll tell you a little funny thing about Bruce, just between you and me and the 4,000 million listeners we have. Um, Bruce, I knew uh, only because of Maria. He represents Andy Kindler, too. Andy Uh, Kindler, he has quite a few few, few big guys. Been around a long time. He's a great guy, yeah. Good guy. But he came originally from the music world. He Mm. was a drummer. He grew up on Long Island Uh and had dreams of rock stardom. That was his thing. And he still plays and he's into music and all that. But Uh originally, his management company was for rock stars or potential rock stars. He got into comedy later. And he has always been excited to be a star himself, although he's now a manager. Yeah. So when this idea was first presented to him that he would be a major character in this show, you know, the second lead in this show, he was super excited, yeah. as one would be. Yeah. And we became Facebook friends. We said, let's have lunch. I didn't want to get to know. And little by little, as the script started coming in, and he began seeing that Bruce of the television show was something of a moron. Yeah. 
um, his his, his <laughs> yeah. enthusiasm slightly waned, yeah. not entirely, right? Not entirely, but right. it, but you know there was a clear a clear change. But yeah. but the real real life Bruce is is a, in fact a really good guy, and and like Bruce in the show, he and Maria have this deep love for each other. This. Non, this non-erotic, well, at least from Maria's point of view. Yeah, non, <laughs> I think I think from both points of view, uh-huh. non-erotic love for each other, and they they get mad at each other, but they will never ever abandon one another. Yeah, they have this kind of deep, and I think that's true in the real situation. Yeah, I yeah, do yeah. too. And so that was so. The reason it was fun, especially for me to play this kind of sort of bumbling character, uh-huh. is because a lot of the times the characters that I play are so slick yeah they get over right and here's a guy who desperately wants to get over and just can't quite do it and when his character when his clients not maria but others are kind of big enough to get on i don't know letterman or whatever right. no more letterman but what you know when they when they make over that hump you right know, remember when andy kindler was on letterman that then then they will often find somebody a little bit flashier yeah, oh, management-wise. Yeah. No, but it's funny because both Andy and Maria have stayed with him a long time. And, you know, I've seen him around for years. But he's definitely a guy who's not slick and has seen a lot. And has been at the level, you know, has, has hammered it out for a long time and uh, has always done okay. And now he's doing better. And it's, a, it's sort of a nice thing to see that happen. It is. In show business where a guy kind of runs his own shop and kind of plugs along with like, committed clients and then you know makes a little uh, a little noise, you know. Yeah, it is very nice to see. But I think, a he's the exception, and b we're gratified to see it because we know that it's so, so unlikely. <laughs> it was a horrible business. It's. I mean, look. <laughs> it's 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 it's. What I always tell people is when when friends say, "Oh, my daughter wants to be an actress." What I say is, the truth is, the wonderful parts about it are more wonderful than you can imagine, and the shitty parts about it are really, really awful. Sure, I mean, should, you should say to them, "Does she like waiting around?" <laughs> <laughs> Does she know how to occupy a lot of sitting down time? <laughs> how is she in small spaces? <laughs> There's a door out, but you might not want to go out. You know, it's like. And that is if you make it. But there's this idea, you know, this idea of like, I want to be an actress. It's like, I want to be a ballerina. I want to be an astronaut. You know, it's like, uh, yeah. what I tend to think is like, it's, it's a weird childish pursuit that if you're fortunate enough to find success becomes a fairly difficult job, really. I mean, there's a lot of waiting involved. But like you were saying before about your father, there's that you, you got you to be able to do the job. That's right. You have to, I mean, it takes, it takes a number of things. In, besides talent, talent, of course, is the paramount thing, but it also takes a significant degree of luck, and it takes a certain kind of personality. I mean, the, the, the built-in paradox is, in order to be good, you have to be confident. Well, how the hell to be confident if you don't have any experience, or if most of your experience is acting and stuff in church basements where yeah. you can't breathe because there's so much dust and nobody comes? Right. So how do you be confident? Well, you have to be, you have to be able to sort of manufacture your own Yeah, confidence. which insecure people, they either do that really well or they, they fall into themselves. There's two ways that can go. Right. And you can also be the type that does it, that overdoes it. Yeah. You know, and and show business has a has a well-deserved, lousy reputation because of that. Yeah. The very first movie I was ever in was about 35 years ago. Uh, it was a movie um, starring Dudley Moore called Lovesick. Uh, yeah, I kind of remember you, that. You might yeah. be able to find it on, on, on Netflix or something yeah. like that, but it was a long time ago. Dudley Moore sort of. But for me, I had a really small part in it, but it was a super big deal for me yeah. because Alec Guinness was in it. 
Yeah. Sir Alec Guinness. Sir Alec. Yes, right. of and, and he And he was like a big hero of mine. So I got up the nerve to ask him, since I was on the movie with him, yeah. uh, Sir Alec, uh, you know, would you mind just do you have any sort of words of advice regarding sure. show business yeah. for a young guy just starting out yeah. and he thought for a second he said yes I can't do a good Alec yeah. he said my advice regarding show business is don't get any on you <laughs> I thought, well that's deep there's from a guy who made it in show business you know telling it like it is well I mean so but you knew like I mean how old were you when you realized that your your father had gotten a little bitter well he got sort of thro- he, 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 when I was young in high school well he went down the ladder so to speak he started yeah. out in television yeah then he went to commercials yeah and commercial advertising was still this was still the Mad Men era when still smart young people were getting into advertising sure and then ultimately he wound up repping for directors and then eventually he always had a dream of being a writer like a novelist yeah Oh. For a couple of years, yeah, he had a lot of a lot of dreams. For a couple of years, we were living in New York City, and I was going to a Tony private school, and we had a big apartment and all that, and he wasn't working. Yeah. And I didn't know he wasn't What's working. What's your mother do? At the time, she wasn't working, but she, my mother started out as a kind of actress wannabe and wound up being a rep for Waterford Crystal, selling, you know, fancy crystal sure. from, from, from Ireland. For weddings and whatnot. Exactly. Yeah. But in those days, she didn't work. Yeah. And in those days, relatively few housewives did work. We're right. talking about the 60s here. Sure. So your dad, you're in a big apartment. He's not working. Right. Is he typing? Yeah, he's typing. And he gets, puts a tie on and goes off somewhere every day. But but he, I didn't realize that he's not going to work. So when I get to uh, at the end of 10th grade, yeah. he says, and I have a sister who's six years younger, he says, how would you feel about moving to Florida? And I said, you're kidding, right? And he said, no, no, I'm not kidding. And it turned out that he hadn't been working for a couple of years. The yeah. family was now broke. Right. And didn't have the money to pay for all these things. And yeah. my uncle had a real estate project going in Florida. Yeah. In 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 Broward County, Florida. That's where my mom lives. Oh, really? Hollywood. Hollywood is where I went to school. Hollywood, Florida. Mm-hmm. And now you've heard, <laughs> you've I heard in this very chair, the chair that I am now sitting in, Paul Thomas Anderson referred to Studio City where I now live as this cultural wasteland this cultural sinkhole yeah if you've ever been to hollywood florida <laughs> studio city looks like fucking paris yeah i'm telling you yeah yeah i know i, I it's florida as an entity as a an idea and as a reality is very hard to wrap your brain around and when the casino came in yeah a, an indian casino the hard rock casino yeah. Uh, that didn't do much to raise the la- no. <laughs> to raise. But it's weird about the beach in Hollywood. I, I've kind of grown to like it because it's quiet. There's a little bit of a boardwalk situation. It's usually French and German. J- yes, tourists. Johnson Street Beach is a big hangout. Yeah. for you'd see all the Canadian, the, the Quebecois Canadians, yeah. with the little banana holder yeah. things in the in the middle of. The yeah, winter. but no one else goes there. It's not a scene. You know, no. you can actually go and have a day at the beach without it being. Uh, uh, you know, chaotic and impressive. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. But in 1972, yeah, I can't imagine when I moved to Hollywood, Florida. My family and I moved to. I thought I was on Mars. Yeah, and I had gone from Riverdale Country School, which yeah. is a kind of a you know fancy prep school in New York, to a huge public school in, in Hollywood, Florida, which was on the border between a farm district. Yeah, and where all the Jews and Italians moved. Yeah. Interesting. Making uh, a strange mix. Plus, this was the beginning of forced busing. This was 1972. Yeah. So, a lot of 
African-American kids from Dania, which is the yeah. neighborhood that in that right there, those, yeah, right yeah. there were busted. So it was tremendous like uh, tension, tension all the time and fights in the in the in the hallways. Which yeah. To me, I t- couldn't make any sense of it at all. Wow. So, so you were really kind of thrown into I was a, totally, America. Right. Precisely. <laughs> I went from New York, which is, after all, more like homesick Europe. Yeah. To suddenly fucking America, mall, you know, yeah. Cinnabon, USA. And I thought, yeah. Jesus, what the... I did, I Pre-Cinnabon America. Yeah. Or something. I don't remember what they had in those days. Well, yeah, but it was like, well, you know, you had uh, uh, the Rascal House. Yes. <laughs> Joe Stonecrab. Joe Stonecrab, the Rascal House, which closed a few years ago. There was a place called Sweden House, a buffet place. That uh-huh. my, I had, a, had an uncle who was a... Rather, Wolfie's Rascal House, right? Wolfie's. No, Wolfie's is separate. No, oh, it is. Yeah. This was Sweden House. Right. And he, my uncle would take me and my cousins there, and he'd say, don't fill up on the sagebrush, yeah. meaning don't eat the salad, you know, yeah. go right for the meat, the expensive stuff. <laughs> so he wouldn't waste his five ninety five on each But each it must nephew. have been sort of interesting. I mean, to, you know, I think, you know, driving into Miami at that time must have been a different thing in the early 70s. Yeah, and- it was. There was, I mean, there, it, was, it wasn't all bad. I got to, I, I listened, there was a great jazz guy Jaco Pastorius who I oh yeah he died down there well he's from down there I know I got to be friendly with him you did yeah this other guy Iris Sullivan I was in a band and uh, this guy Iris Sullivan is a great uh, soprano sax player and I and some interesting things what did you play guitar Guitar and a little bit of drums, and I still. And you're do. hanging out with Jocko, you know, pre weather report, or yes, but this is only because of mutual friends. I had this friend Duffy Jackson, who's a famous show drummer, yeah, and he introduced me to Jocko. So it was I was a kid, but it was cool. I got to hang out with these real serious. Well, musicians. he was a very intense guy. Did you see that documentary? Yeah, I mean, yeah. he was. I mean, there were signs that he was. Abnormal, I would say. You yeah, know? but I didn't realize the extent of it. I don't think anybody did. But yeah. he was a you know he was a genius. He was a savant. Genius. Yeah, and yeah. He, and but he would get in fights with people, and he yeah. would you know, and he was but he was funny because he was very sweet most of the time. Yeah, but he would then yeah you know turn and have so he spent time with the jazz guys down there. Yeah, that was a real cool thing. But in se- essentially, the two years that I spent in Florida were very. I, I didn't know what the hell was going on, and then my family remained there, and I came up north. Back up north to go to college. Yeah. Went to Hampshire College, Hippie College. Up in Oregon? No, Hampshire is in Massachusetts, Amherst, Massachusetts. Oh, in Amherst, right. Hampshire, I'm thinking of Reed. So so Hampshire's the other Hippie College. Right. Where you drive, and there, there it is, uh, you're driving into past Mount Holyoke or whatever on that one road into Amherst, and it's on the left. Exactly. Know, with, the, with the weed smell. Yes, exactly. You, you, can, you can major in baskets and Freudian psychology. Right. Yeah, gestalt and beating and whatever. You build your own thing. Right, precisely. There, there was some, some kid supposedly who, who spent four years building this beautiful handmade rocking chair that he made all of himself, and then he presented it, and they said, well, what the hell is this? Like, he had never bothered to register it as a, you know. Yeah. So, so a lot of kids spent six or seven years there, you know. What'd you do? I, I had a friend from high school that wrote his own plays. Yeah. And so he, just because we were friends, he asked me to be in his plays. So I was in his at, plays. In ha- at Hampshire. At Hampshire. Yeah. Right. And then when he started asking me to be in his plays, other people asked me to be in their plays. So I got to be in a lot of plays. And in those days, you could almost do whatever you wanted. The distribution requirements were very limited. So you didn't have to do a lot of other things. Yeah. So I was in play after play after play. Distribution, what do you mean? Like, you didn't have to... Like, you didn't have to in take school. Yeah, okay, you didn't have right. to take math core, courses or a core, right. yeah. yeah, yeah. The, there was four what they called exams, which are like projects. Yeah, yeah. 
in each of the schools. And yeah. once you fulfilled that, you could then do whatever you wanted. Right. So you could essentially spend all your time doing one thing. Yeah. Nothing if you wanted to. Sure. But so I spent a lot of my time, all of my time essentially, uh, being in plays. And because it was part of this five, they had this five college consortium, this five colleges that were all together in the same valley. So you could go from school to school and there was tons of interesting things to do, plus tons of girls. And let's face it, at that point, that was a huge motivator. Right, so it's at UMass Amherst, Amherst College, right. Smith, Mount Holyoke, and Hampshire. Right, those are the five. Yeah. So uh, I would go to other schools also and be in plays, and I got to meet some really, really interesting people. I, I joined right after, uh, at the end of that time that I went to college, I met these two women uh, who had a company called Shakespeare and Company, uh -huh. which was a company that did classics, but with people that spoke English from all over the world, from England, from Africa, from Canada. Uh -huh. I joined that company. And then ultimately, right after that, I went to Yale Drama School and got out of Yale Drama School in 80, went from there 78 to 81. Got out you got 81. into Yale. I did. That's You must have had in no training before that, really. Well, you know, the kind, kind of college training, typical college training, but not, you know, not nothing, <laughs> nothing un, unusual. Who was in your crew at Yale? Um... The time during the time that I was there, a lot of very big famous actors. In my particular year, yeah, that is getting out in '81, didn't produce too many big stars. Uh, David Allen Greer uh, was in my class. Yeah, uh, Reggie Cathy. I don't know if you know him. He's another uh, African American actor, very good actor. Uh, me, we're the three. I guess biggest people, a uh, 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 director. Yeah, uh, Mitchell Lichtenstein was the son of Royal Lichtenstein. Uh, oh, Jan yeah. Eliasberg, who's a director. Um, but in the class below us, you had quite a star-studded class. Uh, John Turturro, Francis McDormand. Um, um, well, within those two years, Charles Dutton, uh -huh. Rock Dutton, yeah. um, Angela Bassett, a lot of people. Really? And each class only has about 12 kids. So you're there at the same time yeah. for a year. So you saw Francis around. Oh, oh, we were friends. We were good friends. Yeah. So you go to Yale, and it was stage your focus? That's all there was. No, I know there, but like in your mind as an actor. Yeah, by that time, by that time, yes. Yeah. But you say, you know, there was no other training for anything else. There was no training for movies or any of that. The right, but you did a lot of dancing and sword play. And <laughs> yes. Alexander technique. This may shock you, but I never considered dance as a profession. Right. Well, that's good. Well, yeah, probably. <laughs> Though it would have been, might, did you, but you can do it if, if you have to. You got some chops. Oh, God. I, you never I, did a musical? Yeah, but I mean, uh, you know, even a, a, a elephant can dance. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, no, I did have to take three years of it. That's yeah. no, no doubt about that. Sure. Um, but yeah, but I, you know, the training was was significant. But most of the training had to do with the fact that you were on your feet acting all the time. Right. Yale, like any other place, most of the really great people come in for a year or two, and then they split. Then they go off. They're the ones who are actually out doing it. Yeah. Most of the teachers that are lifelong teachers in academic institutions are not as great as the people who um, are practitioners and then come for a year or two and then Right, but go. they might be great teachers and you hopefully in that character they've, they've uh, surrendered to that as opposed to uh, have a chip on their shoulder. Well, you might like, I mean, that would be an optimistic, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, rendering. Yeah. But in fact, I think there's still quite a bit of, you know. Bitterness. Uh, yeah, or, yeah. you know, I... I, I, I and 
at the time, the non-commercial theater was championed as the thing that was going to make America save, you know, America artistically. Sure. You know, we didn't have to worry about all the exigencies of making money and television, all that stuff. So the big thing was these, what they call Lort theaters, these regional theaters. Yeah. So right out of drama school, I got a job at the Guthrie, which oh, is in, one of these uh, theaters. In Minneapolis? Exactly. In, yeah. in Minnesota, I Minneapolis. I performed there, I think. Yeah. It's nice. It's very nice. Yeah. But to my shock, I found out that the non-commercial world uh, is every bit as corrupt in its own way and every bit as full of you know, patronism and all that stuff as any other... It has to rely on patronism more. Exactly. <laughs> they, they, they had, they, they're depending on getting money from, you know, in the case of, of the Guthrie, which, yeah. is, don't get me wrong, it's a great theater, right. but it needs the money from 3M and Pillsbury and yeah. whoever else is right. in, in Minnesota to, you know, they, the, the, all those plush seats cost money. Right. You know, more yeah. than the tickets cost. Sure. Um, and within the company, there was a lot of jockeying for position and all that kind of stuff. Sure, and, yeah. Uh, you know, so I was. Uh, well, that's also another place where lifers show up is to stay at, you know, to get on those boards, precisely, and to, and, and to to sort of dig in to uh, uh, an organization that is, you know, in uh, part of their job is be in between the patrons and the cast and everything else, and and there are people that stay in that world for years. It's so interesting the pe- the people who choose, like I lived in a co op in New York City. Yeah, co ops have co-op boards it's this kind of necessary evil yeah there there are people that are usually people that live in the co-op right and they make all kinds of powerful determinations about who can live there and rules and stuff like that generally you can be sure if somebody wants to be on a co-op board they're an asshole it's usual good yeah you know Uh sign sure and very frequently they're lawyers or other people that work in allied professions because they're used to rules and all that yeah i'm always interested at the people who want to do that stuff Yeah. You know, they want to be around the action and control it, but not actually be a part of it. Yeah. And not even get paid, you know. Right. They're just, they're just, they just like to execute this uh, weird, uh, but very, you know, real power. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, they're, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a it's a, a, a dubious personality type, but there's plenty <laughs> of them around. <laughs> there are. <laughs> Absolutely. So, all right. So now you're you're in, in Minneapolis. It's, you yes, know, in Minneapolis. You're, you're doing the acting. Right. I'm doing the acting. You're doing a lot of plays. A lots of plays. And um, are you getting good? No, I didn't really get It took me about 20 years to get any good after out of drama school. To tell uh-huh. you the truth. I've had a very weird, I don't know if you've heard about any of this before. I've had a very kind of weird trajectory as an actor. Mm-hmm. After I got back from Minneapolis, I came back to New York where I was from. And but I your got, folks are still down in Florida. My folks are still in Florida. So you get an apartment. Yeah, exactly. In New York. Yeah. Actually, was subletting an apartment from somebody. In the 70s, 80s. This is the 80s. 80s this, is yeah. the, this is the early 80s. Okay. So I got what I thought was going to be a great gig. I yeah. got Amadeus, the original American production of Amadeus. The, your Salieri? No. Your no, no, no. Oh. I had a much smaller role, but still a pretty good role. Yeah. And it was a great play. I had seen it. I was excited to be a part of it. And I got a job both doing the tour of it and actually also doing it on Broadway. The Broadway tour and the actual Broadway show. Yeah. About, and I did it for 16 months. A long time. Yeah. Who was Salieri? I did it with several Salieris. The right. main Salieri that I that I did it with on the tour was a guy called Daniel Davis. Uh-huh. Uh, but I did it with Frank Langella, with um, David Dukes, oh, with yeah. whole, many different guys. And who was Mozart? <laughs> Also, many different Mozarts, oh, yeah. uh, including one of the people that I did it with on Broadway. When I came to do it on Broadway, was um, oh God, Luke Skywalker, uh, Mark Hamill. Mark Hamill. Yeah, 
who was yeah. terrific. Oh, good. Terrific in it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I used to, I, I, it was such a kick for me. I used to wait. He, he was so embarrassed because he'd have all these fans line up outside the stage door, yeah. you know, fans from Star Wars. Yeah. And he was earnestly trying and succeeding to give a great performance in something that had nothing to do with Star Wars. Right. But everybody who was in New York from, you know, yeah. Pennsylvania wanted sure. to see Mark Hamill. Yeah. So they'd be like lined up with, you know, Wookiee costumes and all that oh, shit outside yeah, the yeah. police barriers. And it was, but I would wait to go out of the stage door with him to feel this throng, this sure. warm love yeah, that you know, yeah, it was such a gas to feel. So you're, you're beside, you're beside a guy looking at people with lightsabers and you're <laughs> yes. gleaning some love contact high yes. from people wearing costumes. Yes. But what happened to me was <laughs> uh-huh. midway through this run, about eight months into this run, I began to get severe paralyzing stage fright some actors who relax into a long run and they get better they find new interesting things and stuff with me i like rehearsing rehearsing is like doing movies which i enjoy yeah once the audience is in i begin to resent them yeah so so they want from me well it's more like to get more into the psychological aspect of things my dad who i told you about yeah and to some degree, my mother, although that was different, were, my dad was a lovely guy, but sort of depressed. He had this kind of depressed affect, his Heavy. body. Yes. Heavy hearted. And, but, but sweet. Yeah. Not bitter. Yeah. I somehow got the idea at a very young age uh-huh. that it was my job in life to make it seem life, like life was a winnable proposition to him. Yeah, I know that one. You know what I mean? Sure. My dad was depressive. Yeah. So I... Entertain your dad. Yeah, and I actually expanded that to the whole idea of being an actor in general, a performer in general. Yeah. So even though I love the power, I love the rush of being able to, you know, make people laugh or yeah. move them or have them, you know, enjoy me. Yeah. It became burdensome. It became like such, I, I thought that an actor has to be superhuman when in fact an actor just has to be human, if you know what right. I mean. Right, sure, yeah. But I had this this uh, this mantle of heaviness of like, and I began to resent it, and it began to make me have this terrible, terrible stage fright. I mean, so bad, it took every ounce of courage and discipline I had just to get my ass to the theater, and I felt like, you know, here I am. I have this Broadway gig. I was a young guy. I was twenty seven or six. I was a young guy. Well, that's interesting because you you sort of like uh, ingrained a. A, a strange codependent relationship with the audience that it was on you exactly to 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 make life better for them well i told you i told you that the, the world is divided up into people that are lovable in my some part of my sick mind and people that need to earn it i guess that i i i guess so i i'm having a hard time making the leap in the sense that like i can see how you have to earn it but but you but outside of that i think that on a deeper level there's uh, self-sacrifice that like that like you know you've decided that like you know I I've got to if I'm not feeling up to it you know these people are going to be disappointed I'm I'm not going to make life better for them um he, he, you know I guess that's the same as earn but yeah but in the infant state of that thinking if they don't take care of me if they don't love me yeah I'm like gone I'm don't need me I was also adopted I should point out maybe you were I was adopted and told that I was adopted when I as soon as I could talk. Uh huh. Right. Who so, were your real parents? My biological mother, 
is a woman who I know lives here in L.A., a woman called Nancy Zala, who was an actress. Uh-huh. My biological father was a British psychoanalyst called Stan Silverstone, now deceased, but I got to meet him too before he died. The reason I bring that up is when a child knows that he's adopted, yeah. I think even, to- even under the best circumstances, told in the most positive possible way, the child thinks, well, wait a second. Uh, if I was given up once, yeah, uh, maybe that could happen again. Maybe I, if I don't play my cards right, or if I'm not right, or 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 probably a little bit of like, you know, why was I so terrible? Yeah, what what what? Why, why was I unkeepable in the first place? Perhaps, yeah. or why they get rid of me? Yeah, and this is not to blame. I think my my mother, my biological mother, made the absolute right decision. She was a young girl. She was not in a position to have children or any of that stuff, but. This is part of what happens in your mind when you're, you know, a little kid hearing that you're adopted. Right. Anyway, so I think this was this also fed into the situation. So here I was, and in order to get through the play, I had to take drugs and stuff. It was like bad. what, like Valium? Oh, okay. And I, I, I don't mean a recreational drugs. Right. I'm just trying to get through. Really? So it kind of plagued you. You're in your mid-20s and you, yeah. you're having a hard time stepping out there. Yeah. And I felt this bad thing because I felt like, you know, people said, don't be an actor. It's too hard. And I'll, I'll show you. You know, I yeah, went yeah. to Yale Drama School. I have this Broadway gig. When you're 26 years old, a Broadway gig is a, you get, that's a big fucking deal. Sure. You know? And now you're falling and I can't, apart. I, exactly. I can't handle it. I thought, this is awful. What am I going to do? So I said, I thought, I have to finish the run. If I don't finish the run, I'm just going to crawl up in a ball and vanish. Can't I just quit. Yeah. Can't quit. Yeah. So I finished it. And when I finished it, I said, I'm never doing that again. <laughs> I'm it. never doing that again. Because the stage fright was so overwhelming. Yeah. And horrible. Yeah. And meanwhile, huh. I had an agent who was very big in voiceovers. Yeah. Very powerful in voiceovers. And this is before everybody in the world was trying Which to Which agent was that? Abrams. Harry Abrams. Yeah, the original Harry Abrams right. from the Abrams. He was very big in voiceovers, and I knew I I knew about voiceovers because my father had had a very close friend who was an announcer, as the yeah. guys were then called. This guy Ken Roberts, uh-huh. lovely guy, who was the father of Tony Roberts, the actor. Sure. So I said to Harry Abrams, "Listen, I, I want to pursue voiceovers," and he was not particularly encouraging at first. He said, "Well, all right, I'll." So I said, "Let me try." Yeah. So right out of the box, I got Mercedes Benz. TV. Uh, yeah, TV yeah. commercials, yeah. Mercedes-Benz, and I got Conoco, which is a big oil company. Sure. And I I was lucky. And I was making a lot of money. for. I mean, I had no responsibilities. Yeah, that's a sweet gig, that money. It was great. Even then, huh? Even then. It, it, in fact, then it was more. In those days, this is the mid-80s, I was making a few hundred thousand dollars a year. Yeah. When that was a lot of money. Yeah. And no family, no car payments, no nothing. You yeah. Know, just... And my artistic needs, such as they were, were being met by writing and doing other stuff, but no acting. Right, but but it's a, yeah, those voiceover gigs. I mean, like, if you get a run of them, you know. Yeah, and And you think it's going to go on forever. That's human nature. You know, you think, well. Well, the voice, like, it only hinges on your ability to have it. Right, and also it being kind of in vogue. Right, you know, like anything else, like you get a run. Yeah, there, I didn't quite realize. I had a long run, but eventually it sort of ended. And then you did that sweet movie with Lake Bell, the uh, In a World movie, which yeah. is about voiceover. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, Although yeah. Lake didn't know at the time that I had a long voiceover. She didn't? No, it was a total shock to her. But so here's what happened. Yeah. So I started doing all these voiceovers, and occasionally I would do a movie if I didn't have to audition. Yeah. So I got like spoiled. 
Yeah. There was a casting director, wonderful casting director called Juliette Taylor, who cast all of Woody Allen's movies. I'm, yeah, right. That's where I know that name from. Yeah. She then did that, and there was another guy, Howard Fewer, now deceased. But there were a few casting directors who liked me, and they would say, you know, like, uh, Woody has a psychiatrist at six days. You want to do it? Yeah. What movie was that? Oh, I was in, I've been seven Woody Allen films. Hannah and Her Sisters, uh, Another Woman, all these Woody Allen films. Little bit parts? Yeah, generally. Generally yeah. very small. But, you know, because of his, because they're his movies, they're memorable. Sure. And then there were a couple of other things. And I got a movie, I got some bigger parts. There was a movie that I did with Cher called Suspect. Yeah. Also in the 80s. Yeah. And a, uh, a movie um, called The Good Mother with Diane Keaton, where it had mm. significant roles. But I wouldn't audition. They would just, you know, I would be... I was Sweet like, deal. Spoiled, yeah. Yeah. I didn't need the money. I didn't care. It was like a hobby for me. Yeah. So this went on for like 20 years. <laughs> it's a good feeling. Well, listen, I'm. don't get me wrong. I'm very grateful, extremely grateful that I was able to do it. I was yeah. delighted. It didn't do much for my growth as a human being. I got to be 400 pounds. No kidding. I was 400 pounds. Really? I was, yeah. Yeah. Not because, I'm not saying I was doing... For, I'm not saying I was 400 rounds because I was doing voiceovers, but because I became unwilling, I became unwilling to do things where the outcome wasn't assured. I became less willing to take any kind of risks. I got very self-protective. All my relationships with women were very, very limited where I could control things, where there was kind of not an inequality in power rather than, a, rather than more of a shared kind of a thing. And then you just kept eating, could control that. Yeah. Well, you know, after all, you know what a box of donuts is going to do to you. You don't know in a, in a relationship with a, with another human being. There's, right. Yeah, that food stuff goes either way. Either denying it or engaging it is about control. It's like any other substance. Yeah. It's like any oh, other yeah. addiction. Did you have to go to recovery for it? Yeah. 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 And my inco- my recovery is, though I'm committed to it, is incomplete, as is evidenced by many things. Well, you're not 400 pounds. No, I'm surely not 400 pounds. And I have other things in my life besides food that I derive satisfaction from. Right. But I got to be 400 pounds. Yeah. And I got to be very, my life got to be the size of a shoebox. It got to be really small. And I went through a period where I became extremely um, uh, agoraphobic and like wouldn't leave my apartment. Really? Yeah. For several years. So this is sort of like, you know, it's like stage fright all over again. Yes. For reality. Yes. Yes. A good point. And I think they, I think they were related. I think they were related. Well, right, but now it's like the real world. So like now you, you, got, <laughs> yeah. you got nowhere you, to go. Right, yeah, you can't not, sh- you could not go to the theater. You can't not go I to mean, life. I, I, well, you can. You, well, I take that back. You're right. You can not go to life. Yeah. But the cost is extremely high. Right. So, so you were uh, miserable. And I was. I was. Bleak. I was. Right. I was making a ton of money, living in my own little air-conditioned trailer or whatever you want to call it, where I would not, where, you know, shooting fish in a barrel, only doing things where I thought I could win. And you're in the city. In the city. Yeah. And instead of it being this sort of paradise. It was a jail cell. It's oh my god! Really sucked. Sounds it was miserable. Horrible. Just you sitting there with food. Well, food and women to yeah. a certain extent, but women in a very limited relationship. I understand. Right? Yeah. Yeah, and it got awful. So what breaks? What gives? Well, a, a number of different things happened. I don't know what happened first, but I started to get better. I, I went to a psychiatrist, this guy that was very helpful. I also got involved in a 12-step program yeah. that was very helpful to me. 
you know, I don't know. A lot of stuff happened. When, when did you resolve some of this stuff around your adopted parents? Uh, I'll call you. Okay. <laughs> I'm 60 now. Yeah. So it's so funny to me when I hear people like in their 80s talking about their toxic parents. You know? yeah. <laughs> no, when I was 27, yeah. I used to play cards a lot. Yeah. I like to play poker. Yeah. One day I came home. It was about two in the morning. Yeah. And there was an answer on my machine saying, my name is Nancy. Please call me collect at such and such a number in California. This is when I was living in New York. Yeah. So I thought, well, maybe it's, and she said, you can call late. I thought maybe it's about a job or something. Right. So I called this number and she said, is this Fred? I said, yes. She said, you know, you're adopted. I said, yes. And she knew that I knew that I was adopted yeah. because she had hired a detective to call me with a made-up story about trying to probate a will with a name of somebody similar to mine. You remember that call? Sure. Yeah. So she said, you know you're adopted. I said, yes. She said, well, I'm your biological mother. I'm your birth mother. Uh-huh. And you know, my head began to sort of spin, and then we talked for about four hours on the phone that night all about who my father was, what the, the circumstances of my birth, all that, who she was. And when she found out that I was an actor, she had been an actress and yeah. was an actress, she, you know, that sort of blew her head off. She was right. so excited at that. And she said, uh, in about a month, I'm going to come to New York. She was living here in LA. Yeah. She said, in a month, I'm going to come to New York. Would you like to meet? So I said, yeah. She said, meanwhile, if you want to check just to make sure what I'm saying is true, you can go to the, to the Hall of Records in New York City and if you're adopted, you have two birth certificates. One has your adoptive name on it from your parents, yeah. and the other has your birth name or just baby, but they have the same number, and they're, yeah. they're cross-referenced. So I right. did. I saw what she was saying was true. So she said, I'm going to go to New York in like a month. You want to meet? So I said, yeah. So I remember walking into the lobby of the Delmonico Hotel on 59th Street and Park Avenue uh-huh. with this box full of photographs of growing up and my sister and Fire Island and all these things from my childhood. And she also had a box of pictures and we talked and it's this strange feeling because you know, you, you know, we, we, not only do we look alike, we talk alike. My wife laughed hysterically when she first met her because no one in my family that raised me either looks like me or seems like me. Right. Nancy, who I never met until I was 27, we talked exactly the same. Of course, right. And that was weird. Yeah. But understandable. Well, I mean, it shows how much is actually in the genes. Sure, sure. So I go and meet her. We talk. And, and, you know, you kind of don't know how to... You're connected, but you don't really know each other. So it's this funny feeling with no correlative in life. It's not like anything else. Yeah. So she says to me, it was like 1030 at night. She says, I'm kind of hungry. Do you want to get something to eat? So I said, yeah, sure. So she said, is anything open late? So at the time, there were these hamburger, there's a hamburger chain in New York called Jackson Hall. Yeah. She says, Let's go, we'll go to Jackson Hall. So we the go to Jackson burgers. Right, yeah. exactly. Of course, I know that we're all the biggest hamburgers. <laughs> so we go to Jackson Hall, and we're sitting there, and she she's wearing this white, beautiful silk like blouse yeah and she, she takes a bite of this hamburger and a good cup of ketchup yeah goes squirting out of the bottom all over this white blouse that she's wearing yeah. and if i had any doubt that we were related it vanished i knew that had to be <laughs> Your mother. my mother so me perfect <laughs> Like, I should eat in the shower. That's yeah. how bad. You know, you know. Yeah, yeah, right away. Yeah, and so we had this, you know, this strange bonding. And that was 20, I was 27, I'm now 60, so that's a long time ago, right? Yeah. 
and it's a long story. I mean, she 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 had three sons. I was the first. She had another one five years after me, and another one f- roughly five years after that. So each separated by five years. Um, Did the, she keep the other two? The yes, the one the one in the middle, whose name was Eric. Yeah. Uh, they lived. Do you know New York? Yeah. So they lived in the village. You know where the Waverly Theaters later became the the. Um, um, it's on Sixth Avenue in Waverly Place. Yeah, it's now the Independent Spirit Theater or whatever it's IFC called. Theater. Yeah, the IFC. Yeah, yeah. Right. So that theater, they lived right over that in an apartment, right over that. Eric, who is would now be fifty-five if he were alive, was crossing the Sixth Avenue when he was a kid, and he was hit by a truck, and he was killed. Ugh. When he was quite young, I think he was like nine. Ugh. So Sam, who is my the the youngest, is ten years my junior, is still alive and lives in L.A. and has a family of his own. He was raised by Nancy and another man that she married, not my father. Right. A guy, also a guy in the theater who ran a, a, a man called Albert Schumann who ran a theater called the National Shakespeare Company. Yeah. So it's all Interesting. Sort of, yeah. You come from theater. Yeah. Yeah. You, theater, theater, my two parents were an actor and a psychoanalyst. Yeah. And if you know me, that's like so fucking central casting bullshit television movie of the week that nobody would believe it. It's so stupid, but it happens to be true. So now, you know, getting back to the, the you hitting bottom, so what shifts? You know, you're 400 pounds, you, you, you get into recovery, you, you realize you're unhappy, you're in therapy, and you, you, you're doing okay financially. So what, how do you turn it around? Well, here's the strange thing that happened. One of, one of, one of the several strange things that happened. So I'm doing better, but I'm still just doing voiceovers. I go to a 12-step program, helps me, I'm in therapy, da, 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 yeah. you know, things happen. Yeah. And then I meet a girl, we decide we really like each other, we decide to get married, we have children, and I'm still doing very well in the voiceover world, and doing an occasional movie now and then. The girl that's out on the yeah, deck Leslie, right now? Yeah. yeah, who you met. We've now been together 24 years. Uh-huh. So this is a while ago. Yeah. So we decide to get married. After a few years, we want to have kids. And, but that was, you know, I was, I thought, I'm too selfish. And if I, but I, thought, I always loved children. So eventually I said, okay, we're going to have kids. So we have kids. At about 16 months of, of age, both of our children, who are twins, are diagnosed with autism. Uh-huh. Both of them. And that month, I, my main job is I work for CBS. I'm the voice of CBS Sports. So every show that's on CBS Sports, NFL on CBS, golf, tennis, everything, yeah. I'm on that. Unbe- good job. Unbelievable. Yeah. Eight hours a week, $8,000 a week. Yeah. 52 weeks a year. Full health coverage, everything. Great. Yeah. And very undemanding. Yeah. So they bring in a new creative team. See you later. In other words, lost my job. So all of a sudden, I'm married now. I have real responsibilities. I'm 45 or whatever I am. I have kids with autism. I have two houses. I'm married. And all of a sudden, I'm going from making, you know, five, dollars $600,000 a year to making $11,000 a year. And you said, let's go to Hollywood, Florida. <laughs> <laughs> Honey, we're moving. So things were really dire. How, this, now, what, how does this, in, in your particular situation, how does, how does the autism manifest? It's like, wh- where are they? Well, one son has no visible traces of autism at all left anymore. 
uh-huh. at least that the that, that anyone can perceive. Yeah. The other son still has fairly profound autism. They both had the exact same interventions, the exact same treatments. Uh, they started off at different levels, but for for reasons that I can't explain, the son who got better is better to the point where. Uh, I don't think you would ever be suspicious that he had any problem as severe as autism at all. Mm -hmm. He's very social. He's very verbal. He's very smart. He's a straight A student, but he's not nerdy at all. Not, 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 you know. Right. He's just, he's a very bright, articulate kid. The other son um, is very sweet and good natured, but his his speech is limited. He can speak, but you can't hold a conversation with him. Mm -hmm. Uh, He'll play, but he's 14 years old and he plays with things like, he's still obsessed with Thomas. Mm-hmm. You know, Thomas the Tank Engine. Yeah. Stuff like that. Right. Um, he doesn't really play with other kids. He's not, he's biddable. He'll, he's not like really difficult. Yeah. But intellectually, cognitively, he's very limited. And I don't think he'll ever be able to take care of himself. I think he'll, I mean, I think he'll be able to find some kind of work that is satisfying to him, but I, he'll never be able to, you know, he'll always have to be living in some kind of a situation where he's supported either with, Family or when it's some sort yeah, of group yeah. situation, sure, something. Or sure. Other. So he's very profoundly affected. The right. other guy is just going to be. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. How, how do you? How do they account for the difference in in? Autism is such a complex disorder. Yeah. And it's so idiosyncratic the way that it affects different people. Uh, there's no there's no way to tell how severely somebody's going to be affected. It's really, uh, we, we refer to it as if it's one thing, but it's actually many different things that can go wrong. Uh-huh. Um, we, what happened was we were living in the city at the time. We lived in, in, in the city, yeah. but we had a country house out in Montauk. Yeah. But we were told we have to get these services immediately. There's a, one particular kind of therapy called ABA therapy. Uh-huh. Um, which is the, the kind of the, the kind of most important therapy to get, and, and we've told time is of the essence. You got to get it right away, and there was such an avalanche of cases. This is nineteen. This is two thousand and four. Uh huh. Such an avalanche of cases in New York that even though legally we are entitled to get these services, you can't get them. Yeah. There's too many people. Really. Yeah. So we had this house out in the country. And we had a, a a doctor, a pediatrician out there who said, listen, uh, there's a school out here, a yeah. really, really good school that serves both kids with autism and also typical children and gifted children. So you should check it out. So we went to the school. We really liked it. The woman who ran the school said, listen, if you can move here, this was like June. She said, if you can move here by the end of August, I can guarantee you 30 hours per week, per child, in-home services, 30 hours. That's, Through the state? Yeah, all paid for with federal government. Yeah. When, they're, when they're below school age, it's federal yeah. government. Okay. So we're going to hire two therapists to w- just work with you and your family, that's it, and then another 10 hours per week of speech and other stuff in the school. Uh-huh. So this was unbelievable. They don't get, today you can't get these kind of hours. Right. But this was back then. So we moved full-time out to Montauk. And eventually went up selling our apartment in New York, but lived in Montauk. And I had a studio built in the in in Montauk, like this, not unlike this. So you could do ISDN, yeah, and, you know, whatever. Right. ISDN tapes, stuff, right, whatever, right, right, which was fine. Yeah. Then the bottom fell out. I lost the CBS gig. Yeah. And now things are really bad because no money coming in, and no career other than doing voiceovers. Yeah, it's a money saved. 
I did, and it lasted about two years. And then it was, there wasn't very much of it anymore. And you're out in Montauk. Out in Montauk. With no work. Right. And, and but your kids are doing good. Kids are doing great. Nice life out there, but things are getting dire. Right, right. So I had this friend, and this friend said to me, listen, you have like a year's worth of money left before you have to do something really dramatic, like sell your house or something. Yeah. If you didn't have to worry about money, what would you do? What would you like to do? I said, well, if I didn't have to worry about it, I'd like to go back to acting and writing like I did you know, years ago. Yeah. But it's, so, it's such a long shot. He said, so you're going to have to do something. Yeah. So why don't you give it a try? So I did to no great success. At first I was on like, you know, Law and Order. I did all the New York thing. You know, everybody yeah. ever worked as a as a demonstrator at Bloomingdale's gets to be on Law and Order if you live in New York. <laughs> so uh, then one day I'm sitting at home with my wife and things are like, you know, really shitty. And my wife gets answers the phone, there's a phone call. She says, Do you know somebody called Joel Cohen? Yeah. And I happen to know an accountant called Joel Cohen. <laughs> yeah. So I said, Joel Cohen, the accountant, or Joel Cohen, Joel and Ethan Cohen? No, Joel and Ethan Cohen. Says, Hello. <laughs> Fred, how you doing? Well, I'm fine. And I knew them a little bit. Because your friends were Francis from college. Because I'm friends with John Turturro and yeah. John Goodman, and I kind of know their retinue. Yeah, yeah. And also, I had auditioned for Barton Fink oh, like yeah. 20 years prior to that. Yeah. You know, remember Jack Lipnick, the character? Yeah. That, Michael Lerner. Michael Lerner, right. Who was, I, I used him on my show. He's fantastic. He's great. In he's that, great. In that role, he it's was- a wrestling picture. Right. He was actually nominated for an Oscar for Yeah. Me. Anyway. I know. I heard every so, day when he worked on my show. <laughs> <laughs> so Joel gets on the phone. He says, Fred, how you doing? I said, I'm great. Thanks. How are you? He said, well, listen, we have this movie. It's called A Serious Man. Mm -hmm. And there's a role in this movie, and it's not a huge role, but it's very key to the story. And I, it, it, and I just have a feeling you'd be really good in this role. Are you, are you interested? Yeah. I was like- Oh, let me check my book. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I said, yeah. So I said, so they said, come to New York. So I came to New York, talked it over with them. And they said, great. We want you to do it. You're fantastic. So I said, great. So they said, there's only one problem. The problem is we have three movies that we're scheduling kind of at the same time. One of them is Burn After Reading, which of course has all big stars in it. It's Brad Pitt and, and George Clooney. Malkovich. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. So we, can, we have to do them based on the availability of these other actors. Yeah. So a year passes, Ugh. and by then the you, wells are like really, really running dry. Yeah. And I think, fuck, this is gonna. This is one of those Hollywood things where it's such yeah. a great part, it's such a great movie, and it's gonna never gonna get made. Yeah, yeah. And then they call. Yeah. So finally, I go out to. It was, it was all made in, in Minneapolis where yeah. they grew up. So go out to Minneapolis. We make the movie. I had a total blast. I mean, enjoyed just. Totally loved making it. And Michael Stuhlbarg, who plays uh, Larian, is my dear friend, and I had just absolute joy, and they were wonderful to me. And yeah. Totally reinvigorated my desire to make movies and all that stuff, and, and it was great. It wound up getting nominated for Best Picture, and I won an Independent Spirit Award for it, and all, all of a sudden, yeah. at the age of 52, I suddenly had this whole second... You're back in play. Yeah, as you know, and that's like... At that is to be that age and suddenly be back in the saddle is like that never happens. Well, yeah, especially because you know, like we said earlier in this interview, that you know, you 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 convince yourself that what you want to do in your heart is not doable, and that you work. Right. You're gonna work. There's no there is no more powerful positive experience that I've ever had than being proven wrong about my own limitations. That's a great thing. 
It's fantastic. Because like I, you know, and I've said it on this show, I, I mean, one of a powerful thing that somebody said to me when you're a talented person, it, you know, the only thing that's going to enable you on some level to move through life and use your talent is to realize its limitations. And and I thought that was very sage advice. But, you know, if if what you're harboring beneath that is like, uh, you know, there's so much more I want wanted to well you must push you have to push you have to push right. you have to but you a, might not be able to do that on your own and you might i think i think i think very often you can't here's the great thing that i didn't know yeah. the great thing that i didn't know is there's a very significant difference between comfort and happiness mm. they are two different things if you oh, see what i'm saying i do but i thought i'm such a messed up guy I'm never going to be able to have the things that I really want. I'm too scared. I'm too hmm. whatever. Yeah. So comfort is what I'm going to go for. So I made my life about the amassing of comfort in Security. everything. Right, yeah. right. Comfort. Comfort in like, well, you understand. Sure. But happiness is can be achieved or can be, you can feel it. You can get it. But very often, you have to be willing to undergo a significant level of discomfort to get there. And I was just not of the mind to do it for a long time in my life. I just yeah. wasn't willing to do it. Right. You know? And right. So, and look, I don't, you know, that's the way it is. That's the way it happened. But in my life, I'm lucky that, and truthfully, if things had, if, if I had continued doing voiceovers and continued making money, I think if I didn't think, fuck, the world is over. I never would have had this whole happy second part of my life. I think certain people, me included, are not always willing to take enough of a risk unless they are forced to. And right. then you go, wow, there's a whole world out there that I had written off because I just thought I was too frightened to see what it's about. Yeah, it was out of your control. Like you didn't, you right. right, and right. And, the, and the truth is, it's much, hap it's much better to live in the big, under the big sky with all the uncertainty, all the sh horrible shit that we know can happen, than to live in this little self-contained hermetic box. Just because you have control over it. Yeah. Or the illusion. Right. Well, you control. think it's control, but like I said, it's, it winds up being a jail cell. Yeah. A jail cell that you control. That's, that's very powerful. I mean, I'm going to think about that. So that, and that's really what relaunched you as a, that serious man yeah but it relaunched me in two ways it relaunched me both from a you know people seeing me point of view which of course is great but also in my own heart right. i thought wow you know i this is great challenging how, yourself how could acting I yeah and it's so it, acting is a fucking gas i yeah. love acting yeah yeah, yeah. acting's all about people how weird people are, how yeah. how people tell themselves that black is white. You know, people can tell themselves anything. Yeah. And they get to the point. How does a human being get to the point where being Donald Trump is okay or being a kill, killing somebody is okay? Yeah. You know, he doesn't think he's a piece of shit. Yeah. He, he thinks he's doing the world a favor. Right. How does a person, how do they get there? To me, that's fascinating how people... And it's and it's human. It, that's exactly the point. Yeah, that's exactly the point. Acting is all about human beings. That's why it's never not interesting. Well, that's beautiful. Well, I'm glad it worked out. Me too. Now I'm going to spend the rest of the day thinking about comfort and happiness and the difference between them. <laughs> well, I, I have a feeling you'll come out on the right side of that one too. Well, I appreciate you talking to me. It's my great pleasure. 
That was great. I'm glad he came by. I like talking to him. I, I like, he just, for some reason, he feels like a, a, a huggable, warm presence to me. Something familiar about uh, Mr. Melamed. Happy ending. Boomer lives.